This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, Congress is back in session. There's a lot of talk on health matters coming out of Washington. The new Veterans Affairs Secretary, Robert McDonald, telling lawmakers that significant changes are already underway at the VA, starting with the Phoenix facility that was ground zero for the breakout of the Veterans Health Administration scandal of severely prolonged wait times leading to premature deaths of patients. He says that they are proceeding with rigorous investigations into issues at more than 100 facilities that currently are treating veterans across the country. He did note that 150,000 appointments were completed in May, June, July. A significant improvement over previous years. The VA has also reached out to a quarter million veterans across the country to get them off wait list and into care and treatment. And since he took office, they've hired 54 new clinicians at the VA facility in Phoenix. Congress did appropriate more funds to address the unmet need across the country. So looks like they're beginning to make some real progress in getting to the bottom of this problem of treatment of the nation's veterans and shoring up staffing where it's needed the most. McDonald uh, vowing to learn from the experience in Phoenix and correct the problems so they never are repeated. Uh, Strong words as well as actions from the new VA chief. And Mark, also some strong words and action coming from the new chief of health and human services. In her first major speech, HHS Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burwell promised to devote all of her efforts to improving the functionality of healthcare.gov, the problem-plagued federal insurance exchange, as well as spending additional resources on certification and training of navigators who are the people who help customers navigate the site. Her recent hire of Kevin Cunahan to run the federal exchange, that was a positive first step. That certainly was. Kevin uh, ran the Connecticut exchange. We know him well and wish him well. Uh, He'll be working in concert with a highly specialized team to make sure the system is ready for prime time come open enrollment in November. Well, Mark, it really comes down to how easily information can flow from the customer through the portal to the appropriate officials. Something that happens so easily in other industries like banking still seems to elude the health care space, but certainly making great strides in a relatively compressed period of time. On that note, Margaret, it's National Health Information Technology Week, uh, sponsored by uh, HIMSS, showcasing the essential role of health IT as it improves quality, expands access, and helps curb cost of health care in America. Well, health IT issues and the further development of health IT is certainly central to the responsibility of healthcare providers around the country, and still so much to learn in that space something our guest today knows quite a bit about. Russ Branzell is president and CEO of the College of Health Information Management Executives, an organization that promotes policies that strengthen the health IT landscape so that health professionals can maximize the promise of health IT. It's an evolving discipline and much needs to be done uh, to support that space. Factcheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, will stop by with more false claims spoken about health policy in the public arena. Uh, But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Russ Brenzel in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. 
The U.S. government is aiding in international efforts to fight the burgeoning spread of the deadly Ebola virus through a number of West African nations. Liberia, which is the epicenter of the worst of the outbreaks, has one of the least efficient health delivery systems. The U.S. government is setting up a temporary hospital unit in Liberia that will house the flow of providers coming into the region safely. Also, a fourth American medical aid worker has been brought back to the states to recover from the virus. Scientists are honing in on a treatment utilized blood parts from those who've survived the virus to produce a quicker vaccine. Meanwhile, officials of the CDC are focused on a different kind of virus outbreak in this country, affecting school-aged children mostly in the Midwest. The enterovirus 68 can mimic cold symptoms but quickly deteriorate to far more serious conditions. A number of children have been hospitalized so far. National health officials are keeping their eye on the outbreak of this rare virus for which there is no special treatment, though it's noted 68% of those afflicted suffer from asthma and other related respiratory issues. The Veterans Administration is targeting VA health facilities around the country that were found to have violated the VA's requirements for treatment of patients. Since word broke of the scandal of long-delayed wait times leading to premature deaths of dozens of patients at just one Phoenix facility, a new VA secretary has been put in place, and Congress passed a $16 billion bill aimed at rectifying the clinician's shortfall. Wait times have been reduced, and clinicians are being hired. But that's not the same tune being sung by scientists across the country funded by the National Institutes of Health. There's been a steady decline of funding at NIH since 2012 when conservative elements in Congress began slashing funds for scientific and health-related research. Many long-term research teams are being unfunded, closed altogether, or having to cut back greatly on their work. Meanwhile, the Department of Health and Human Services has doled out $60 million to a variety of groups around the country engaged in helping customers navigate the online insurance portals under the Affordable Care Act. In the 34 states that didn't set up their own exchange, and especially in those states that didn't expand Medicaid to the population, residents found it very difficult to get help they needed, navigating healthcare.gov. And the woman who discovered the first gene for breast cancer, BRCA1, is out with new research suggesting the gene, once thought to be primarily prevalent in families, is now more widespread than that. She's urging all women over 30 be genetically screened for BRCA1 and BRCA2, a gene mutation associated with ovarian cancer as well. About half the women who presented with those genes in her most recent studies had no family history of the disease. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Russ Branzell, uh, President and CEO of the College of Health Information Management Executives, or CHIME, an organization serving the professional needs of over 1,400 chief information officers and senior health IT professionals in the healthcare industry. Mr. Branzell has served as CEO of the Colorado Health Medical Group and Vice President of Information Services, during which time they earned the distinction of being the most wired, most wireless hospital or health system by Information Week. Mr. Branzell has served in numerous leadership roles at CHIME and is board certified by the American College of Healthcare Executives. Russ, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much for having me today. You know, uh, we're at that proverbial watershed moment for health IT in this country. Uh, so much transformation underway with the adoption and implementation and hopefully meaningful use of all of this new electronic uh, health data. 
But the Department of Health and Human Services recently issued a final rule on achieving meaningful youth status in 2015, and your organization has taken strong issue with that rule. Can you tell our listeners about the rule and what CHIME is recommending as a better option for stakeholders? Late last year, there was some discussion both at the federal administration level as well as on the Hill relative to the concerns about the momentum of meaningful use. And we came out with a lot of other organizations, actually 50 strong associations that signed onto a memo asking for flexibility in the program, specifically timing flexibility. Uh, I think there was a uh, underestimation of the complexity and the requirements for this much adoption of technology and the ability to optimize that technology over what was really a compressed period of time. Uh, to their credit, Health and Human Services came out with a notice for proposed rulemaking uh, earlier this year, which did give some flexibility, and which, by the way, we commended them greatly for, and it needed to occur. The problem is, given the timing of what that process takes, what really occurs is the process takes months and months to become a final rule. That final rule just came out about a week and a half ago, which really was the end of a fiscal year. Uh, we really lost the ability to garner any flexibility. The biggest concern we had, though, was, and this was a very strong ask by ourselves and many other organizations, was the changing of the 2015 implementation period to be a 90-day reporting period instead of the entire year 365. And the reason that's so important is if you have a 365-day reporting period, you need to be ready on 1 October, the beginning of a new fiscal year, if you are a hospital trying to comply with the program. Many will not be ready to start collecting data in the next few weeks. Well, Russ, obviously uh, it seems like we're still in something of a nascent phase in the field of health information technology. And if we look back over the the recent years, certainly the growth of adoption of electronic health records was spurred in, in great part by the High Tech Act, which provided significant infusions, billions of dollars to help institutions transition away from paper records. But throughout all this time, we've had that Tower of Babel problem, so many information systems that aren't able to talk to one another or understand one another. Uh, certainly, we've had many guests on the show that address this lack of interoperability. How does your organization approach uh, the breadth of this problem, and what are your recommendations for improving interoperability? Uh, most of our systems, the computer systems we use today, grew out of a period of isolation and competitiveness, not out of a period of collaboration and patient care sharing. And so to move that, that process, to move that needle some, is going to take quite a bit of effort. That really was part of the adoption of meaningful use in the High Tech Act. And I think there are a lot in this country, both in Washington and out everywhere else, that are misinformed and thinking that somehow magically we're going to jump to the latter stages of meaningful use benefits while we're actually in the early stages of adoption. The easiest way to describe this is by an analogy of a house build. We are just finishing up the process of pouring the foundation. We haven't even started framing up our house. Now, a few organizations have, but the vast majority, in generalizing this out, are just finishing up the laying out of the foundation. As we move into stage two, we'll start the process of, of erecting that house, and eventually we'll move to stage three, which is finishing it out and furnishing it and living in it and having interoperability. But to assume we're going to have stage three interoperability and exchange of information while we're just finishing up stage one, I think is a little short-sighted. 
Now, there are many things we can be doing, working collaboratively with other organizations, with other industries, but I think we also need to recognize we're just really entering into the period where interoperability can be enabled by the early stages of adoption that we've had. Another item, which was the delay in implementation of ICD-10, called for everyone to be ready October 1st of 2014, and there were many practices, including ours, <laughs> that were uh, working very hard in preparing for that, and this was postponed for one full year. Uh, talk to us about your feelings about this delay and what approach do you think the industry should be taking as we look to ICD-10 adoption next year? We were extremely disappointed in the delay, especially in, in, in light of the timing at which it was delayed. For most of the organizations, both hospitals and providers, they were either in the implementation phase or actually finishing up the implementation phase of adopting their ICD-10 technologies within their financial systems and revenue cycle processes. For most organizations, they actually had this software running behind the scenes live and ready to go. And, and for a vast majority of the country were actually ready for this. Uh, I, we think this was delayed for probably inappropriate reasons. It was, it was brought into a process of bill making that really had little to nothing to do with ICD-10 and the changing of this and actually created quite a bit of burden for organizations. In many cases, organizations had done enough change and enough adoption that they couldn't go back. Mm -hmm. Many out there today have this system running. It's operational. It works. They're doing all the, the behind-the-scenes work and the front-end work of coding to these standards. Then people are manually going back mm. and downcoding back to mm. ICD-9, which is expensive. Uh, it's laborsome. And we, we, we are looking forward to getting this adopted in 2015. But uh, the reality is it was probably a short-sighted process considering how far we are behind with the rest of the world from an ICD-10 perspective. Mm -hmm. And certainly makes it harder the next time around for people to believe it's actually happening, among the other unanticipated consequences. You know, that's one of the questions that I get asked almost on right. a daily basis via email or phone call from our members are, right. <laughs> I'm being asked whether I should go ahead and spend the money for this now. What should I do, Russ? Exactly. And I, well, I tell in many cases, I'm not sure yet. So obviously just tremendous amounts of uh, innovation and challenge and change in the healthcare landscape and your organization, very important in helping health information executives and the institutions they represent address these rapid changes in health information technology. Tell us, what are the services that you provide for your members? What, what do they look to you for? And what policy directives are you promoting as you move forward with this mission of an integrated health IT world? We are a group of professionals. I lived in this world for almost 20 years as a CIO. And that is an association that comes together to help each other out to not only survive these crazy times, but also hopefully thrive in these crazy times. So it's actually an a organization of peers looking for ways to both serve in an education role to one another, share best practice, and really lean on each other to shorten the adoption curve and shorten the hard uh, work that needs to be done. Uh, we are not a lobby organization. We do not have a political action committee. Uh, we really serve as our role to advocate and educate both at a state level and at, mostly at a national level to try to assist in the understanding of how this affects our industry and actually try to 
advance the industry in such a way that we can really get to what is often referred to as the triple aim, and that is most importantly improving patient care, improving safety, and reducing this burdensome cost that we have that's hurting our national economy. Uh, we are 1,500 strong CIOs plus other associations now that we have launched, and they really have a primary goal, and that is to help our country serve our patients and our families and our communities in a better way and to make this affordable, which I think is everybody's goal. We're speaking today with Russ Branzell, uh, President and CEO of the College of Health Information Management Executives, or CHIME, an organization serving the professional needs of over 1,500 chief information officers and senior health IT professionals in the healthcare industry. Uh, Russ, uh, security breaches are another big concern uh, we recently read that the federal exchange, uh, healthcare.gov, was recently hacked, and uh, it doesn't seem to be relenting. Tell us, if you would, where you see the most urgent vulnerabilities right now uh, that are weighing on CIOs in, in health facilities across the country. Uh, this is probably the greatest challenge facing the uh, HIT professionals that are out there, in particular the CIOs and the organizations they support. Of, of organizations that are out there, only 50% have a chief security officer in place managing security in their organizations. We think there's just a lack of professionals working in this industry. In many cases, they're very expensive. The, the salaries associated with these when they come out of other industries, uh, they pay a lot greater salaries than what we traditionally see in healthcare. And so as we recruit these people in, not only do they have great technical skills, but they don't have the healthcare understanding, so it even takes longer to do that. Mm -hmm. We launched about a, a little over a month ago a new association called the Association of Executives in Healthcare Information Security. And in just the first few weeks of that being launched, we had over 150 members join this organization. The days of security and easy security are over. Uh, if the CIA can be hacked, if the federal government with all its resources can be hacked, the average hospital or medical group out there are going to have trouble just being able to protect itself. There are very few organizations that can even afford the type of technology solutions that are needed to implement a very robust security. So this is an area of great concern to make it both affordable, reasonable, and actually adaptable for the organizations that are out there. Well, we're always uh, looking to the transformation of training models for tomorrow's healthcare providers. And certainly the generation that's uh, coming into healthcare as providers are digital natives. They certainly consume entertainment as well as information via their tablets and their smartphones and expect to use these devices in the healthcare setting. What fundamental changes in training do you anticipate as we prepare the next generation of healthcare providers and professionals? How does health IT factor into that paradigm shift? We do have a unique dilemma right now, and that is this is one of the first times, if not the only times, we have to deal with three, almost four generations of learners hmm. in trying to adopt to new technologies. So not only do we have to have solutions that fix the people in place, we also have to have the things that are necessary for the new generations to come up where there's just a natural ingrained thought process to do this. Everyone uses social media. We're moving to a whole new social media-based platform where the days of going to a traditional website and grabbing things really don't exist anymore. We go to a social media environment. We look for things to be pushed to us rather than us search for them. So I think part of this is a reversal of the process of waiting for people to come to us and rather for us to come to them with the things that are there being pushed out through email and saying, here are new things that are available, while taking care of the things that are just in time type training through 
interaction with peers and creating small groups of communities so they can share in their needs and during tough times. They can create a social network. Uh, we did that through traditional means even when I was a CIO. That was called the telephone. That doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. But I don't want to impede the process. We've launched a program called our LEADS, a leadership and development programs that small re- regional events, 20, 30, 40 people at a time, to really intimately sit down and talk about hardcore issues that they're trying to solve. And this year it just happens to be on your previous question, which is on cybersecurity and the ability to implement those. So you have to hit the whole spectrum of training, but the concept of engaging people in their natural life is probably the foremost of what we're looking to engage people on. Yeah, now I want to pull the thread a little on that because it is uh, one of the most daunting uh, problems, I think. You know, we, we've seen some initiatives. Blue Button has certainly been out there. Um, all of the portals that we've seen are very clunky, and you have to be very interested in getting that data. Uh, but it's not part of your daily life. And so we have this big struggle between almost generational. But unless we design something uh, that is more user-friendly, I don't think we're ever going to really achieve this full integration that's being uh, being discussed there. Sir, thoughts on that? Well, I think what we're going to have to see, and I, and I like your comments there, is this natural evolutionary process we're going through is going to take too long and it's going to be too complicated and be too costly we're going to have to find revolutionary-type items. Who would have thought even 10 years ago that something like a Facebook would even change the way we share our information and our pictures and keep connected with people that in many cases, if you moved, you just kind of lost contact with them? The same is true. You have to implement technologies in such a way. Uh, Our new solution that we're partnering with an organization called NextWave Connect is actually trying to do just that, try to connect all of our CIOs, our HIT professionals in such a way that it's just native in sharing information on a daily basis of things that they need to. Uh, I see email in my email inbox, and if I've got 20, 30, 40 new emails, I just look at it as 20 or 30 new emails. If I look down at one of my social media apps on my phone and I see a little red number next to it, somehow I have a panic attack. And I think I better get on that because there must be something important. I think that's the integration with our natural life. And we're going to have to find those examples to also legally, respectfully, privately, and securely exchange patient information to help our providers care for people. Well, Russ, we've really observed and and appreciated the focus that uh, the current uh, administration in Washington has put on bringing in uh, the brain power, the IT brain power from all around the country, from the private sector and from Silicon Valley. Uh, Todd Parks, who we had on the show early on, uh, has left his post as chief technology officer at the White House, returning to Silicon Valley, probably to recruit more tech talent to lend their expertise to government. And his replacement, former Google VP Megan Smith, thought to be a very powerful pick for the post. What more do you think needs to be done from a policy perspective uh, to improve the environment for health information technology and maybe from a regulatory perspective as well? What's, what's government's role in advancing all of this? The, the Probably the... The the biggest gap that we're seeing at this point still is appropriate government standards that truly are standards-based, and that is, in many cases, what we see is a facilitation of a natural process out in the industry that probably takes too long, and there is, is a time and place for the government to clearly lay out standards and requirements. 
patient matching and patient identification is a great example of that. Uh, just like the IOM study now of well over a decade ago, um, the, the same thing is occurring with patient matching and patient, stand, uh, patient identification. People are being harmed, injured, and killed almost on a daily basis, if not on a daily basis, because of inappropriate patient matching. That's a good place for the government to step in with good standards that apply across a very large brushstroke part of the industry, if not nation, in such a way that we can facilitate great gains in those areas. And, and I think what happens is, is we deal so much in a world where we think things can't be government-led in certain perspectives that we end up fighting that and end up with, with poor solutions where we could have a clear standard that's out there. And I think this is a great example of clear standards, clearly enforced standards. Now, that can be through the certification process. That can be through government oversight and audit through something like OCR. No matter how it's done, there is an appropriate place for the government to come up with clear standards. That's probably the area where we still think there's an appropriate place for government intervention. We've been speaking today with Russ Brenzel, uh, President and CEO of the College of Health Information Management Executives, or CHIME, an organization serving the professional needs of over 1,500 chief information officers and senior health IT professionals in the healthcare industry. You can learn more about their work by going to cio-chime.org or follow him on Twitter at CHIME CEO. Russ, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare Today. Thank you very much for having me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Over the years, we've seen an avalanche of advertising against the Affordable Care Act, and with the midterm elections approaching, that's continuing. In Colorado, for example, an ad from the conservative group Crossroads GPS exaggerates a few personal anecdotes to claim that many Coloradans pay roughly 100% more for health insurance since the health care law was passed. But the news story the ad cites to back up that claim says that some resort area residents were paying that much more and gave two personal anecdotes, a couple who say they are paying about double and a woman who says her premiums have gone up 66%. The story was about Coloradans who buy their own insurance on the individual market. So the ad takes a line in a news story about some resort area residents and turns it into many Coloradans in the ad. As a narrator speaks, viewers see the quote from the newspaper on screen with the word some left off. It's true that Coloradans living in ski resort areas and some rural areas of the state have complained about high premiums for those buying their own coverage. But residents in those areas faced higher health costs before the Affordable Care Act, too. One of the issues for rural residents is the low number of health care providers. The ad references that issue, too, but wrongly implies that the Affordable Care Act was to blame. It says, on the Eastern Plains, patients now outnumber doctors 5,000 to 1. But that figure comes from a 2013 data on the ratio of total residents to primary care doctors, and it's the first time the study was conducted. The authors don't cite the health care law, whose major insurance provisions hadn't yet taken effect, for the problem. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. September is Suicide Prevention Month, and it's of particular interest to the Veterans Administration. An estimated 22 veterans per day are taking their own lives in what's being described as a post-war suicide crisis. With a lack of behavioral health clinicians available for every veteran who's experiencing difficulty, the VA has launched a campaign aimed at all Americans who know veterans who may be struggling to be aware that they can make a difference just by reaching out. It's called the Power of One campaign. The idea that one person reaching out to one veteran in a caring manner can make a difference. The power of one small action, one conversation, or one phone call can make a difference in the life of a veteran going through a difficult time. For free, 24-7 confidential support, call the Veterans Crisis Line or the military According to Dr. Caitlin Thompson, Deputy Director of VA Suicide Prevention Program, it takes only a moment and just one small act can start them down the path to getting the support they need. The VA has launched a new suicide prevention hotline. It's now collaborating with community groups across the country to prepare them to better address the needs of these veterans, many of whom don't know how to ask for the help they need. Veterans, service members, and anyone concerned about them can call the Veterans Crisis Line, 1-800-273-8255. They can chat online at veteranscrisisline.net slash chat or send a text to 838-255, even if they're not registered with the VA or enrolled in VA health care. All Veterans Crisis Line resources are optimized for mobile devices. A dedicated program aimed at reaching out to veterans across the country empowering community groups and individuals to find ways of offering support to getting veterans the help they need before it's too late. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center. 